Hi, and welcome to Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy with philosophers. My name is Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy. And with me, as per usual, I have... Martin Jansson, uh, associate professor in theoretical philosophy at Lund University. <laughs> and joining us today is Professor Jennifer Saul, uh, currently the Waterloo Chair in Social and Political Philosophy of Language at the University of Waterloo. Uh, who has written extensively and influentially on many topics in analytic feminist philosophy, including implicit bias, as well as in political philosophy and the philosophy of language, and have published several books on these topics. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. And since this episode is about your philosophical development, let's start from the very beginning. What was your first philosophical thought? I have two candidates for this, and I'm not sure which came first. So I'll tell you both of them. One of them was that I, as a relatively small child, was thinking about the way that if a ball bounces up, when it bounces up again, it bounces up some fraction of that distance. And I thought, wow, it's always going to be a fraction. So I could build a perpetual motion machine. And <laughs> I did not identify this as a philosophical thought. I didn't realize it was Zeno's paradox, but I got obsessed with building a perpetual motion machine. And I thought this meant I wanted to be an engineer. I was hopelessly misguided. It clearly meant I wanted to be a philosopher. Um, the, the other candidate for my first philosophical thought was that as you know, many people with siblings, I was having some sort of fight with my older brother. And I shouted at him, you're King Kong. I don't know why that seemed like an insult, but it did. And he shouted back, yeah, well, you're King Kong's little sister. And I felt like it was the greatest moment of my life when I could say, yes, that he had just drawn out the logical consequence of my insult and agreed to it. And I feel like that was a moment when I really appreciated the, the beauty of logic. <laughs> and language uh, and then became interested in philosophy of language so right. those were i think my two first yeah. philosophical thoughts when do you sort of have exposure to the philosophy of others or when do you sort of when do you approach philosophy uh, well i was very lucky because my school had an english teacher who had not completed a phd in philosophy And every year or two, they let him teach a philosophy class. And so in high school, I actually had a philosophy class, which was very rare at that time, at least in the United States. Um, and he was wonderful. Um, I just, I loved everything about him and his sense of humor, which I've since come to realize is, you know, basically philosopher's sense of humor. And I think that's one of the joys of being in philosophy is being around people with philosopher senses of humor. Um, And again, I remember there, there's this moment when things started to click for me. Um, we were reading The Republic and I was a typical American. And I, I don't know if you, Americans are really into the constitution and in love with their constitution in the kind of you know religious way. Um, and the first amendment protected, protection of freedom of speech is like taught to you as an article of faith or something. I mean, I, I didn't have any religious upbringing, so it's the closest I had. Um, and I remember 
spending some time being really angry that this was that what Plato was proposing was against the First Amendment. <laughs> and then there was a point when it suddenly hit me that that was completely irrelevant and that I could just look at the arguments on their own merits. And I just remember finding that tremendously exciting. And so I think that's when I, I first started to actually really get what philosophy was about. And I, I loved it. And this realization uh, occurred in high school with... Yeah. Yeah, I see. And so, so were you set on, on um, doing philosophy at uh, the university? Um, it was one of the things I was interested in, but you don't have to decide before going to university in the US. Um, I remember the first philosophy class I took at university was kind of surprising. Um, in, in retrospect, I find it a hilarious decision I made because I, um, like I said, I had no religious upbringing. I was raised, um, I, my parents were raised Christian and Jewish, but they're basically agnostics. They're anthropologists and they like to say they just found all the religions interesting, but I didn't have even much knowledge of religion at all. And I certainly didn't believe in any. And I remember looking through the course listings as a very earnest you know, 17 or 18 year old and seeing that in the philosophy of religion class, we will discuss proofs of the existence of God. And I thought, fuck, people have proven that? <laughs> I really need to know. <laughs> you know here I've been thinking that, 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 that you couldn't prove that, but you can prove it. I, I, I need My to know God. about this because I've, I've been an irresponsible atheist not knowing about these proofs. And um, I, I was a bit disappointed that the proofs you know, were totally unconvincing <laughs> if you don't start from the right place. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but that was why I took philosophy of religion as my first philosophy class at university. So, so where is, is this at uh, Princeton or what? No, university? it's at the University of Rochester. Rochester. In nice. upstate New York. Um, and uh, so you wrote your early, um, your, your bachelor thesis there or? Um, yeah, there's no bachelor thesis, um, but I, I did my bachelor's degree there. And I, I think the second class I took there was a philosophy of language class from Dorit Baron. And I just absolutely loved both naming necessity and grace. And, I've, and so I, I think my, my career for a while there proceeded predictably from that point. <laughs> Um, so, but you, you did your PhD eventually at Princeton, right? I did. Uh, and was that on the philosophy of language? It was. It was, um, it was on propositional attitude semantics. I, I did it with um, Scott Soames. Um, I don't know how much you want me to talk about this. I want you to explain um, what that means. So, propositional attitude semantics. Um, at that time, a very popular theory of names was that the meaning of a name is just the person or thing that it refers to. So one kind of interesting case to consider, if you have that view, is somebody like Superman and Clark Kent, where you've got you know, two names for the same person. And Propositional attitudes are, you know, attitudes of believing and doubting and that sort of thing. Um, so there's a problem that you encounter if you endorse that kind of theory of names, which is that it seems like Lois Lane might believe that Superman can fly and not believe that Clark Kent can fly. 
but if the only meaning of the name is the individual picked out by it, then you have to try to figure out, you know, what's gone wrong here, right? How can you make sense of that? It seems contradictory. And um, the view that I felt, you know, that I wanted to defend, which was also my supervisor's view, was that um, that Lois actually does believe that Superman can fly, even though she doesn't realize it um, and wouldn't recognize that sentence is true. It's a very unintuitive view. And I think the reason I found it interesting to defend it is because I liked thinking about um, what, what do we do? Why, to what extent should we care about our intuitions about these things? How much does it matter if the, if our view violates the intuitions and how can you explain away something which seems like it's wrong, but your view is committed to it being right. And I was really interested in those kinds of methodological issues. And I think that's why I went for that topic because I was interested in those methodological issues. All right. And that's what I ended up writing about. I was not doing anything political at that time. And um, indeed, it's probably, it would not have been possible for me to do anything political with Scott as my supervisor because he is a very strong Trump supporter. Um, and I am rather on the other end of the political spectrum, but we had similar views in philosophy of language. I see, I see. So once you, you finished your PhD, you did you still want to work on, on a related topic or did you immediately want um, to move on to uh... I thought I did and um then I got I, I thought I, I was it wasn't the only topic I was interested in I should mention that I um had always had very strong political interests and you know one thing I didn't like very much about Princeton, but one thing I liked about it was that it was close enough that I could easily go march on Washington all the time. So, you know, I was always very interested in politics and my grandmother um, had introduced me to feminism. She was a mathematician. And then after she retired, you know, threw herself into feminism of the 1970s and took me to consciousness raising meetings and that sort of thing. So I'd always had that interest. Um, because of that, when I applied for jobs, I listed feminism as an area of competence because I wanted to teach it because I like it. Um, it's that thing you do when you're applying for jobs and you claim competence a bit beyond where you actually have the competence. You know, it's the places where you'd like to get the competence. And then I got my first job at Sheffield. I was very fortunate to get a job at a place that I absolutely adored. Um, and they called my bluff pretty quickly and asked me to teach some feminism. And I absolutely loved doing it. Um, they also gave me a lot of freedom about, you know, exploring other kinds of topics and encouraged me to explore ways that philosophy of language might intersect with feminism and that sort of thing, which really hadn't been encouraged before and was a, a really it was a very strange thing to do at that time. It was very unusual. There are not many people doing analytic feminism at all and definitely not analytic philosophy of language. So that encouragement, I think, really helped me to explore that area, which I've turned out to be really interested in. So, so when is this? When did you? Uh, that was 1995 that I went to Sheffield. Yeah, I see. Um, but you're you're also continuing work on sort of more traditional um, philosophy of language 
uh, at the same time? Uh, yeah, well, I got, you know, I got a few papers out of my dissertation. In fact, what I initially did was I tried to get one paper out of my dissertation and it kept being rejected for being extremely long and boring. Um, and so then I split it up into three papers and got three publications in perfectly de decent places because they were short enough that people didn't get quite so bored by it. And I, I found that a very valuable learning experience. Um, it's, I always advise this to students, instead of trying to write that one really long paper, break it up and then you get more publications. Um, but then I also, like I said, I was always interested in methodological issues in philosophy of language. And I was really interested in um, Grice's distinction between what's said and what's implicated. So what's literally explicitly said and what's communicated beyond that had always fascinated me. And that was really a lot of why I worked on what I did in philosophy of language because people were talking about that distinction in that area. Um, but then I decided to just focus on Grice for a while. Right. So, and so sorry, um, I- papers just out of curiosity which were the three papers that you split the long paper into oh god um they were <laughs> they were negative paper they were papers criticizing various accounts of propositional attitude semantics um the most exciting thing about them is that one was about the role of intentions in propositional attitude semantics and because there's this phrase that good intentions are the road to hell, and I was trying to make my titles interesting, I called one of these papers the road to hell. And then I got the best off-print request ever because this was before things were up on the internet. I got a postcard from the French National Transportation Safety Board wanting a copy of my paper, The Road to Hell. And the only way I can understand that is to think that this transportation safety board saw the title, thought it looked dangerous and that they should find out about it, this road to hell. So I sent them a copy of my paper. I never heard back. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only title I remember from that bunch. But it was a, a good outcome from that title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and then you you turn to Grice, uh, who you... Yeah already been interested in for a while uh, yeah yeah and i think this and is I no, sorry still adore grice i do too hey, can you say something about <laughs> grice for us who don't don't know anything about him yeah so um like i said grace is interested what one of the things that i'm most interested in grice is the distinction between what's literally said and what's communicated beyond that and I've become increasingly interested over the years in how that gets employed in things like deception. So if you want to avoid lying, you can say something that's literally true while communicating something false. And you can say, hi, I didn't lie. Um, and I think sometimes that's okay and sometimes it isn't, but you know, I've got complicated views on that. Um, uh, probably the most discussed case in recent literature of that is Bill Clinton saying there is no sexual relationship and talking about Monica Lewinsky at a time when the relationship was in the past. So it was true that there was no sexual relationship at that moment, but it was also misleading because people did actually believe for you know a few hours anyway that he had denied that there'd ever been a sexual relationship. So I did, I spent a lot of time writing about Bill Clinton's sex life for a couple of years there. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, writing about perjury. <laughs> so, um, just concerning uh, Grice. So, so one, the first papers of yours that I read are two great Grice papers. So one is speaker meaning what is said and what is implicated, <laughs> which I think does an excellent job of relating two of Grice's projects. So one is just accounting for lots of semantic notions in terms of speaker intentions. And the other one is sort of uh, implicature stuff. Um, and which, as far as I know, is not, these topics are not related in any clear way in Grice's own writings. So that paper, sort of, I feel, is a must read if you, if you like Grice. Um, and also uh, the other paper is what is said and psychological reality which I read it's a long time ago now but I remember it as sort of uh, um, sort of setting the record straight about Grice's legacy in, in other disciplines than philosophy or more applied perhaps uh, um, also fantastic papers uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit since I like Grice as well <clears throat> Um, and I'm currently supervising a student who uh, asked me to ask you what you think about um, Grice's project uh, in, in meaning, which is also uh, developed in logical conversation. The idea of sort of re reducing semantic notions to speaker meanings, uh, or speaker meaning mm -hmm. and utterance intentions. How do, is this something that you, believe in or do you think it's misguided or it's, it's sort of it's such an ambition yeah yeah it's not something that i've worked on I mean, to be honest it actually was the first thing that i got excited about grace back when i was an undergrad um but i have not really thought about it since um very much except for the paper where i'm arguing that implicature isn't after all all about speaker intentions right um so I think it's unlikely to succeed, but that's a, that's not based on any, you know, sophisticated arguments. Um, I just, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite dubious about doing that, but I haven't really looked at it in any detail. I'm sorry to say. What I've been very interested in um, throughout my career, and I'm still very interested in the things I'm working on now is mismatches between how the speaker understands something, you know, how the speaker intends something and how the audience understands it. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm quite skeptical of reducing meaning to either one of those or the other, or right. reduce the, you know, because I think, I think they, they don't line up as neatly as people like to think they do. Right. There has to be a room for divergences yeah. there. So you, you did this work on Grice, and it eventually led to to um, papers and um, a book on lying. Uh, yeah. So, so this was a way to sort of wed your two interests in sort of political philo philosophy and and philosophy of language. Um, Starting to a little bit at least. Was, <laughs> yeah. And you also wrote independently on feminist philosophy at this time. Yeah. So what were your, your sort of concerns at, at this time? Some of your papers are sort of the combinations of philosophy of language and, and uh, feminist philosophy as well. Did you have other yeah. sort of non-philosophy of language interests as well? Um, 
is mostly the, the feminism was philosophy of language stuff, but I also had, um, because I was teaching feminist philosophy, I didn't, you know, there wasn't a, a textbook that I could find that I liked for teaching undergrad analytic feminism. So I wrote a textbook. So I wound up doing quite a lot of broader stuff than for the textbook. Um, I, th I think there might've been some things that came out of that, but mostly I got interested in feminist philosophy of language and Again, I was concerned with the way that people doing feminist philosophy of language weren't looking carefully enough at the complexities of the context and the speaker and the audience and teasing these things apart and thinking about them properly. Um, so there were, there are still, there are very popular and much discussed feminist claims that pornography is a speech act of silencing and subordination of women. Um, I think there are lots of empirical problems you can have with the kind of evidence that's used for that. But there's also a philosophy of language problem that's quite basic, which is that pornography is not a speech act. I mean, a speech act occurs in a context. Right. Um, and so you might have, you could understand sort of like a showing of pornography or a viewing of pornography, a, a particular one of those as a speech act. But right. pornography itself can't be a speech act. Um, right. So... It was a way of, you know, it's, it's the same kinds of concerns I tend to have in philosophy of language all the time, I've realized about the speakers and the audiences and the context, right. um, but then applied to that case in feminist philosophy. I see. And not being able to pin down the status of something until it's contextualized. Yeah. Uh, you've also written extensively on uh, uh, implicit bias and, and how, which is not... I, I'm, I'm assuming it, it came out of sort of interest in, in prejudice and feminism. What made you uh, interested in that? So what happened there is that I had, um, so I'd become very involved in the Society for Women in Philosophy. I had become director of SWIP or I was, you know, close to becoming director of SWIP at this point. And I was increasingly talking to other women in philosophy about problems in the field. And why, and I started being asked, why are there so few women in philosophy? Is it just that women don't like philosophy? Is it that women are generally bad at philosophy? You know, all these things like that. And so I started looking at the research on what kinds of explanations there might be and looking at the kinds of explanations that are given for underrepresentation in STEM subjects. So I started, you know, I was just as a, a way of thinking about what the dynamics could be in our field I started giving talks on that. Um, in fact, I think the first talk I gave on that topic was in Lund. Um, I, I, the first time I wrote a paper on that topic was because I got invited to discuss it in Lund. <laughs> and, and I will say that as a, I don't know whether you want to keep this in or not, but as a non-Scandinavian, um, my stereotype of Scandinavia was that it's the paradise for gender issues. That's what I, I thought. And I remember when I was invited and people were saying, you know, we have issues with the underrepresentation of women in philosophy here and we'd like you to, you know, come discuss this issue. I expected to find that the issue in Sweden was that we've only got 49% women. We want to get it up to 50. You know, I really expected it to be, you know, close to perfect. And now I've realized you know, everybody's got basically the same problems. They play out slightly different in different places, but everyone does have these issues. Um, but yeah, I first started, I, it was actually because of an invitation to Lund that I wrote a paper on this topic for the first time. And 
then I decided I wanted that a very good, I made a, I wanted to get philosophers taking these issues seriously. And one route was to approach the philosophers who are already interested in these issues and talk to them about how to solve them. I also thought, hey, this implicit bias thing is really philosophically interesting and people aren't discussing it nearly as much as they should be. I mean, it's hard to believe now that people weren't discussing it, but there was a time when they weren't. So I um, applied for a grant to have a project on implicit bias and had a whole bunch of workshops on implicit bias and got things going. Um, I think there were th- things were going elsewhere as well, but this was, you know, one of the things that happened early on to get philosophers thinking about this. And I have to admit, part of my reason for doing that was that I thought if I can draw philosophers into this philosophically interesting topic, then, um, and they might come for the philosophy, but then start to have their ideas reshaped about how they should approach issues like women in philosophy. Can we say something about what uh, uh, implicit bias is? What sure. is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there are, as with everything, there are a lot of you know vibrant debates over exactly what it is, um, but roughly speaking, Implicit bias is about largely automatic, largely unconscious, these qualifiers are important, um, attitudes that people tend to hold, which reflect um, the nature of their societies and the stereotypes that are prevalent in their societies. So if you grow up in societies with a lot of racism and sexism, you are very likely to make some automatic possibly unconscious judgments um, about group members of groups that are that reflect the dynamics in your society. So you're likely to um, unconsciously associate, say, violence with black men, um, or unconsciously, or partly unconsciously, or I mean exactly how char- characterize that is a difficult issue. Um, associate men more with science subjects and women more with art subjects. And one of the things that makes this so philosophically interesting is that in many cases, this seems to go against genuine, deeply held explicit attitudes. So the implicit attitudes can clash with the explicit attitudes. Um, There's an anecdote that's often used to illustrate this, which is Jesse Jackson, the African-American civil rights campaigner, has said that the most painful experience he's had is that of walking down the street late at night in an unfamiliar city. He hears footsteps behind him and then he feels relief if he turns around and sees a white man rather than a black man. And it's not that Jesse Jackson actually is a horrible racist hypocrite after all, right? It's not that he was lying. It's not that he doesn't care about these things. He's devoted his life to fighting these stereotypes, but nonetheless, he's grown up in a culture where these stereotypes are prevalent and he's affected by them. So that's a case where the implicit bias rises up into consciousness. And it's a very disturbing experience to have discovering that about yourself. And so there are lots of interesting philosophical issues about how to make sense of what this is. I mean, obviously, you know, I've gestured at issues about whether this is associations or beliefs, how unconscious it is, how automatic it is. Um, There are lots of issues about your moral responsibility for these attitudes or for behavior based on these attitudes. 
there are issues about how much you want to make sense of this as a phenomenon of individual minds and how much you want to make sense of it as a phenomenon of cultures and structures that people function in. So there is a huge range of super interesting philosophical issues having to do with implicit bias. But my, my interest in it initially and probably still is primarily in um, what this tells us about what kinds of reforms we might want to make to improve philosophy. So you've written a number of, of very, very interesting papers on, on implicit bias. Um, one, for instance, skepticism and implicit bias who sort of relates the epistemological problems that implicit bias raises to sort of classical skepticism or evil demon kind of, a, of skepticism. Um, so, and um, <clears throat> I'm curious, since, since it seems to me that the philosophical literature on implicit bias has sort of quite dramatically changed over the years since since philosophers started writing on it and some empirical tenets are sort of abandoned now or qualified uh, at least uh, and if i remember the paper correctly you were sort of tentative about the comparison even in in the skepticism paper but do you still how, what's your current view on sort of the epistemological problems that implicit bias uh, um, actually, I think my views largely unchanged. Though I'll um, I'll say a bit about the the argument that I made there, which is that um, so one of the things that we know from the literature on implicit bias is that we can that our judgment of say a, if you give people the same CV with a different name at the top of it, they make dramatically different judgments depending on or in some. They, in some kinds of cases, this is where things do get a little bit qualified, but they can be very different judgments based on whether the name is a woman's name or a man's name, whether it's a black sounding name or a white sounding name, where they judge the man's CV to be better than the woman's CV, the white sounding name to be better than the black sounding name. Um, and this also, there've been studies showing that this holds true for assessment of abstracts. There are, there are some studies, there's the, the studies on um, things like marking are a little bit unclear, but there seems to be um, pretty good evidence that anonymous marking where you don't know the name or the gender of the person you're marking has led to higher marks for women than they were getting without it. Um, so that suggests that our judgments of quality are influenced by the social category of the person producing the work that we're examining. And if that's right, you know, and a lot of our a lot of our knowledge comes from the testimony of others, then our judgments about who to believe are likely to be influenced by implicit biases. And we don't really know, we we, you know, and looking back on our lives, we don't know which things, which decisions we made might have been influenced by these things. And so this can give rise to a kind of skepticism. It's never going to be as sweeping as the kind of skepticism you get from an evil demon type of scenario. It's not gonna make you doubt whether the world exists or not. Mm. But on the other hand, we don't have any evidence that the evil demon exists. Right? <laughs> Whereas we do have evidence that we go wrong in these ways. Right. So there's a way in which this skepticism is stronger and a way in which it's weaker. Um, I think 
you know, the, the lesson of it in terms of what we should take away epistemologically is a kind of humility that we might've been getting things wrong when deciding who to believe in contested cases. And as I said in the paper, I think the way to deal with this is that we need societies that are structured in ways which are less, um, less biased, that are they're less structured by categories like race and gender. Um, and I think, you know, I think societal reform is the best way to go to fight all of these. Right. So, so in the paper, you mentioned sort of some, um, the, 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 what is usually called uh, implicit bias interventions as well as more personal ways to combat implicit bias. But do you feel more now towards that structural reforms or do you see it some, some sort of a... Yeah, so that is a, a place where my, my views have changed a bit. I think I used to have more hope for the individual remedies for implicit bias, and now I'm more focused on the structural. I've always thought we should pursue both. And when I when I give training talks about implicit bias, which I do a lot, um, I actually do still tell people about both because some people are not in the position to take structural measures and individual measures can also perhaps make a difference. Um, also, I mean, some of the, I, the, the distinction between individual and structural is kind of messy. So something like anonymous marking, which is a, you know, it's a good reform to put in place because if you don't know who you're marking, you're not going to know their social group and you're not going to be influenced by whatever biases you have. It's not trying to stamp out the biases, but it's doing that. It's a structural reform if you do it at the level of the institution, but an individual can do that at the level of their class as well and start doing anonymous marking. So that can be an individual reform and then it restructures the class. So there, there are murky borderlines between individual and structural. Um, the kind of thing that I am a little bit less enthusiastic about is the kind of individual reform that's designed to try to reduce your implicit biases um, and re or reduce their manifestation by changing something about you. Um, I think there is evidence that this can work, but it's kind of very narrowly targeted, like you have to work on a particular bias, and then it can work for a while on that particular bias. Mm -hmm. But then what if you, you know, you've worked really hard on your anti-Black bias, and then you've got an Arab student, oh no, you hadn't done that one yet. You know, it's, it, I think, I think it's better to have a structural reform that can encompass more implicit biases. Right. Uh, instead of sort of handling them one by one. Yeah, and and also the 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 individuals have it's very reliant on people having the willingness to go through these things and do them and to do them right, and it's not clear how long the individual bias reduction techniques work. So mm -hmm. I really much rather think in terms of structural reforms, which can affect more people. They can be long; they're longer lasting, and in some ways, they're easier to implement. Right. And there are also some evidence now that even if you can get a sort of a, a difference in the implicit measure, it might be behavior might remain unchanged. So, so this is something I've written about. I have a recent paper with Jules Holroyd about implicit bias and reform efforts in philosophy and whether and how we should be changing what we say based on the recent literature. And Jules made a great argument um, in that paper, which I, I love, which is that, you know, it's absolutely true that just changing somebody's implicit biases doesn't change their behavior reliably. 
But just changing somebody's beliefs doesn't change their behavior. You convince somebody that they should stop smoking. And they come to believe I should that you know it would be good for me to stop smoking. That does not get them to stop smoking. Mm. Behavior change is hard. So just changing any mental construct is not on its own going to change the behavior. And people were perhaps too optimistic in thinking that if we could just change the implicit biases, the behavior would change because that doesn't work with beliefs. So why should it work with implicit biases? Um, that's a good point. Um, but as you say, it's sort of, it's quite unclear how much sort of effect they have even at the psychological level currently. There's been some meta studies on that as well. And it seems, they seem to be difficult to reliably reduce. Um, so, but what kind of sort of, if you, you're thinking structural reforms is, is maybe a, a better way to go, what kind of, of structural reforms have you, are you thinking of that? The, the tricky thing about structural reforms is, you know, if you want to reform an institution, you need to know how that institution functions to make those proposals. So you can make up, you know, there's some quite general things like anonymous marking. You can see how that's a structural reform, which can be applied quite generally. You can do certain things toward anonymous hiring. Um, it's trickier, but you can, you can anonymize parts of the process. Um, so there are some very general structural reforms, but often what you need to do is get to know the institution that you're talking to. So what I, what I do now when I do implicit bias training is I talk about the phenomenon of implicit bias and the, the, you know, how it works and give some examples of procedural reforms. And then I say, contact me and we can talk about how your institution's structured and talk about particular reforms that could be put in place. Um, so for example, and it's also, you don't necessarily anticipate what you're, what institutions are doing that could be a problem. So one place, um, a pretty prominent place where I've done implicit bias training outside academia, I found out that the, their entire promotions procedure, with the, every promotion was based on nothing but a single high stakes interview. And I said, wait, you mean you don't actually look at the CV? No. But you don't look at what the person did in their previous post, what they accomplished, what skills they have. No, you do nothing but an interview. Yes. Okay. So it's interviews are known to be a place where there's tons of involvement of bias um, that, you know, the bias of the interviewer can actually throw off the person being interviewed. So they interview less well, the assessment of the interview is incredibly subjective and open to bias. It's you know, the, the most biased procedure you could get is nothing but a high stakes interview. And that was the only thing they were doing. And so one thing you can do to improve that procedure a lot is to say, how about you look at the accomplishments of the candidate, not just how they perform in an interview. And I would never have thought to suggest that because I would never have thought anybody was looking at just the interview. Um, but I think that's the kind of thing that really needs to be done to make the improvements is to look at how an institution functions and then work on how to improve it. Can, can, can I ask, what is the difference between implicit bias and prejudice? Because <laughs> it's, 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 for, 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 for a yeah, layman like yeah. me, it sounds a lot like, you know, prejudice. But I guess it's um, not. So I think the term prejudice gets used in a lot of different ways. And there are some technical definitions, but just in terms of the general everyday definition of prejudice, it's a broader phenomenon. So prejudice will include 
not just implicit bias, but explicit bias. Like somebody who goes around saying, I think women are kind of dumb and happily believes that and asserts it. Okay, that kind of person isn't implicitly biased against women. They're prejudiced against women in a much more explicit sense. So it's a, prejudice is a broader category. And also, um, do we have, a, are there good implicit bias? Is all bias, implicit bias negative? Or that's a, I, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, there, there definitely can be, I mean, implicit bias, the implicit biases that people have focused on are these problematic ones. I, so it, first of all, it can be positive and still problematic. So the bias that white people are especially great that implicit bias is positive for the white people, but it's clearly a problem. But you might, you can also have implicit biases that, you know, I've seen psychological literature looking at the implicit bias in favor of Pepsi versus Coke and that sort of thing. You can have implicit, I mean, if you think of it just structurally that it's an association which functions in this way, then it's not it's not necessarily even about groups of people. It's just that the stuff that we've been, in, that I've been interested in looking at is about groups of people in this kind of way. Right. And it is worth saying that not, you know, not everyone has the same implicit biases. Um, so women and men tend to hold pretty much the same implicit biases about women and men at the same levels. So women are just as likely as men to think to implicitly associate women with arts rather than science, that sort of thing. Black people do hold the same negative biases about black people as white people do, but in lower numbers, right? And there are significant numbers of black people who actually have positive implicit biases in favor of black people. And um, I think you know, that's a, a thoroughly good thing. <laughs> Um, and I think I think it's a I think it's I, I look at the the implicit biases of black people and I think they're they're doing so much better at this than the women are. The women just internalize all this completely, and the the black people have you know more solid more group solidarity there. Um, so it's it's a messier picture. It's not like everybody has the same collection of biases and they're all bad. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your your most or more recent work on uh, on political speech uh, and uh, so, so maybe you can just uh, say a little bit about what you're currently working on on there so i've been working on implicit bias um i'm also very interested in political speech and one thing i missed when i was working on implicit bias was talking about language um because I'm really interested in language, and I became drawn to the topic of dog whistles in political speech. Um, so a dog whistle, there are a number of different definitions of a dog whistle. I don't know if this term gets used in Sweden, but um, so <laughs> the very broad understanding of a dog whistle, the overarching understanding of it is it's um, a way that a politician can communicate or influence their voters in a way that would be unacceptable to do too explicitly, right? And they can do it in a more implicit way. So you can see how this brings together a number of my interests. Um, and, you know, so one kind of way that this happens is 
with coded speech where you're going to think there are two very different kinds of dog whistles. One is where you want to communicate with more than one group of voters. So you want to sound like an ordinary politician to your ordinary voters, but you want to let the more racist people know that you're really on their side. Um, so in the United States, a traditional way of doing this would be to say, I support states' rights, which you know, can seem like you just support the structure of the constitution where states get to decide some things and the national government decides others, which sounds fairly innocent, but states' rights was also what the Southern states said about why they should be allowed to keep their slaves and about why they should be allowed to keep their segregation. So asserting states' rights can be a way of saying, I'm really quite racist and I support the racists, or it can be a way of talking about the constitution. So it's kind of code. Another kind of dog whistle that functions quite differently is um, something that gets your voters, gets people to sort of vote their racism without realizing it. So famously um, in 1988, George W. Bush ran an ad about his opponent, Michael Dukakis, um, in which he talked about Dukakis's um, policies on crime and showed the face of a black murderer who was released from jail and killed people without ever saying anything about race. And this ad was found to function by taking whatever racial attitudes people had and raising them to salience and getting them to vote those attitudes. So people throughout the election were being polled on their levels of racial resentment and on their voting intentions. And once that ad got prominence, the more racially resentful white voters became more likely to vote for Bush. Um, but Jesse Jackson comes in here again. <laughs> Eventually Jesse Jackson started talking about that ad and saying there's something really racist going on here. And he was treated incredibly disrespectfully, but he was on all the news shows and people would say, yeah, there, there goes crazy Jesse Jackson playing the race card. This is obviously not true. There's nothing racial going on here. But as soon as Jesse Jackson started talking about whether it might be racial, that correlation between the, the level of racial resentment and the voting intentions started falling away. And the way this has been theorized in psychology is that the racial attitudes are brought to salience outside of consciousness. And if people become conscious of it, they start monitoring themselves because they don't want to act on those racial attitudes. Mm -hmm. So um, that's another kind of dog whistle where if you can make people act on their racial attitudes without realizing it, you can manipulate them. So I got very interested in dog whistles first. Right. And there seems to be a clear relation there between the second kind of dog whistle and implicit biases. Yeah, they are related. I mean, it's slightly different psychological constructs. The racial resentment and implicit bias are measured differently, but they're definitely related. And so I, I had then head of department for four years and I had a year of research leave coming up during which I could do anything I wanted because I, you know, I needed to remember how to do philosophy again after being head of department. And this, I thought, this, this oh, Sheffield, right? yeah, it's still Sheffield. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, this is great. I want to look at subtle racist speech in politics, like dog whistles. 
and there's about to be a US presidential election. There's always lots of really subtle racist speech in US presidential elections. So I'm going to study what's happening. And this was 2016. <laughs> and um, it wasn't subtle at all. But then that was even more interesting because there was a sort of dogma in, or, or at least strongly held belief that nobody could get away with being as blatant about their racism as Trump was. So I became interested in figuring out what was changing and how it was changing and why it was changing. And that's what I've been doing ever since. It's, it's trying it's to figure out how the more explicit stuff is happening. So, so can you say that's super interesting. Can you say a little bit more about what you think is happening there? Where yeah. You get so um, yeah, so what I became interested in was a really weird thing about a lot of Trump's most racist utterances, which is that, well, I'll, I'll just give you an example. When he announced his candidacy, he, among one, amongst the things he said was that Mexico is sending these horrible people here. And he said, they're rapists. And some I assume are good people, which was really very strange. And all the attention was rightly focused on the fact that he had said that Mexicans were rapists, which was an absolutely terrible thing to say, incredibly racist. But I started getting really interested in the fact that he then said, but some of them are good people. It's like, why is he doing that? And my guess was that people, even Trump supporters, maybe, I mean, some Trump supporters are clearly completely happy to be racist and endorse it fully that are, you know, they, they you know, wear Klan costumes and things. Um, but that some of them don't want to think of themselves as racist. And that sayings, but some of them are good people is a bit of reassurance that he can't really be racist because he said some of them are good people. Right. And of course, the reason that this could reassure somebody is if they hold the view that a racist would condemn every single member of a particular racial group. And it turns out that view is, you know, quite a widespread misunderstanding of how racism works. It's also a convenient one because it turns out that nobody you know is racist, yeah. right? And that's why people think, you know, oh, I have a black friend, so I can't be racist. Right. <laughs> so it's a convenient view to hold if you want to think that way. Um, and so, I became interested in these things that Trump was adding on to reassure people like that. I call them fig leaves um, based on the, the, the paintings when artists would want to depict naked people, but they weren't allowed to depict naked people. They put a fig leaf over the bits they weren't allowed to depict. Um, so I call it a fig leaf because it just barely covers something that you're not supposed to show in public. Right. And I, I actually, after hearing that utterance, I thought, I wonder if Trump supporters care about this bit of the utterance. So I sought out Trump forums online for Trump supporters who were discussing the issue of whether Trump was racist or not and reassuring each other that he wasn't. And I think it's an interesting fact that they're hanging out online reassuring each other that Trump's not racist. They care. They don't want to think of him as racist. And they were pointing to that as evidence that he wasn't racist, that he had said, and some of them are good people. Right. So I became interested in this kind of thing, a fig leaf, and how it functions to 
make people okay with an utterance that they wouldn't otherwise be okay with. It lets them keep themselves from seeing it as racist. Right. So there's some, I guess, not you probably explored this, but it seems to be a sort of a Gricean connection here with you sort of discussed the distinction between two kinds of implicatures, conventional and conversational, and characterized sort of um, them in terms of whether or not they can be could be uh, cancelable. So, so a conversational implicature would would be, for instance, if someone asks you, uh, "Are you coming to the party?" and you respond, "I have to work," you thereby imply that you are unable to go to the party. But you haven't said that you can't go to the party. And you might go on, and this is the idea about cancelability, to say, but I'll, I'll try to make it. Mm-hmm. This sort of denies the implicature. Uh, and for some implicatures, you can do this, the conversational implicatures, but for some implicatures, you can't. And these are the conventional implicatures, which are a little more, a bit more controversial. Uh, but uh but for instance might be one so if you say that he's if we go for a, a racist conventional implicature he's he's black but very friendly you have sort of implied that there's a contrast between being black and being friendly and it seems that this implication is strong enough to not be possible to negate so you can't go on to say but but i don't mean that there's any kind of contrast here you've sort of committed to a large extent, you know. And it seems that the fig leaf is doing some something similar, but it sort of, or it tries to do something similar. So you have sort of uh, either a explicit commitment or mm. a, sort of a, a racial implicature that is being generated. So you say that Mexican or, Mexicans are rapists. Right. And then you add something that tries to sort of, um, if not cancel, then uh, moderate what you just have said or, or, or implicate. Have, have you discussed sort of this connection between? I, I hadn't thought about that before. I think it's a really interesting <laughs> idea to think of it that way, actually. Um, no, it, it's surprising to me that I hadn't thought of it in terms of cancelability, but I hadn't. I, I like that. Because uh, it's... And it's also, it's sort of interesting at the, at which level you sort of the racism is located because I, I'm assuming that you can have fig leaves at different levels. So here is saying something racist and there is a sort of explicit fig leaf, but there might also be sort of racist implicature and implicature yeah. fig leaf of, of some kind as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I think, in, in fact, I think some of the cases that are, you know, viewed as very blatantly racist are actually, they're implicatures, but I think you can have quite blatant implicatures. I don't think it necessarily lines up on the, you know, I think, you know, they should go back to the countries they came from, which Trump said about, you know, four women of color who were US citizens and and, and Congresswomen. <laughs> um, I think, that is a it's got a blatantly racist implicature but it is an implicature right so yeah 
So at at what is said at the level of what is said, it's it could be fine, even though it. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> but it's yeah. really strongly implying. Yeah. Is so so looking forward. What 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 um. What what would you like to work on in the? Well, what I've recently got interested in, I'm still interested in you know how it is that we've made this move from, you know partly concealed racism to much more blatant racism. But I'm also, I'm coming back to the interest in deception. And I think there's a parallel move from, from I, I'm not quite sure how to formulate because I've, I've, I've been working on this for about a week now. <laughs> um, but from politicians who are really trying, you know, you tried to conceal the falsehoods to being much more blatant about the falsehoods. So I think there's I think there's parallel moves with the racism and the falsehood, and I think that and and also that this ties into the rise of conspiracy theories, which integrate both falsehood and often racism. Um, and I'm thinking that all of these may function together, and that both of them can be facilitated by fig leaves. So one of the things I'm thinking about is the fact that often the way that a lot of the conspiracy theories get spread is that first it's, it's, I'm just joking. I just think this is kind of interesting. It's just something to think about, right? And people put it up there. Mm. And that's a kind of fig leaf for it that like lets you be excused where you might, you know, otherwise be seen as, you know, spreading, things that obviously shouldn't be spread you're just you're just putting it out there to discuss you're not endorsing it um and so i think these fig leaves for falsehood are kind of interesting to study together with the fig leaves for racism and i'm thinking about trying to write a book that does that but this is an idea i've had for about four days now (laughs) thanks so much for 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 coming uh and, and joining the podcast thank you for inviting me